This is the CQ University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters. They are cute, they look cuddly, and they are certainly not a bear. The koala is one of Australia's iconic native animals, but the species has had their fair share of problems in recent times due to urbanisation. Today on The Grapevine, I'm speaking with CQ Uni's expert in koalas, Dr Alistair Melzer, who heads up a community-funded research program, Koala Research CQ, which is based at CQ Uni. Welcome to The Grapevine, Alistair. Thank you. Firstly, can you tell us about your role at the Uni? Uh, these days, I'm an adjunct research fellow, uh, and so I'm working here in an honorary capacity. Uh, the research that I'm currently undertaking lies in relation to koalas, but also in relation to other aspects of conservation biology. So matters in relation to the management of, of environmental weeds in national parks, for example, is 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 one of those, but also some work with Wayne Houston on in, on invertebrate assemblages in our grazing landscapes as well. Awesome, and but koalas play a, a key role in your research endeavours. Yes, yeah, so koalas have been my specialist interest for well over twenty years now, and uh, and I've been working in central Queensland on those since the. Um, well, since a, as a since I was a postgraduate student in uh, about starting in about 1990, I was a mature age student, and then joined Sikh University in about 1996, I think it was. And I've been working on koalas throughout that time, um, but also I've been working in environmental um, uh, research and environmental management as well through what was then the Centre for Environmental Management. Okay. I think um, studying koalas must be a pretty cool job. Would, would was that a, a childhood dream of yours, or or how did that come about? So uh, I got into koala research through uh, what would you call it? Uh, financial opportunity, really. Um, uh, when I first graduated from the University of Queensland, I was working on the Great Barrier Reef um, as, a, as a research diver for um, Robert Endine at the time, looking at crown of thorn starfish. Um, but when his funding dried up, I was left looking for a research opportunity. And I'd been doing some volunteer work with the... Uh, in fact, I was involved in the, the establishment of Australian Koala Foundation back when, in the 1980s. And um, they um, they offered me a um, a small scholarship for me to um, to do some an honours project on uh, on koalas, and so I um, I did that, and then they followed that did they followed that up with a PhD scholarship to undertake a PhD study on koalas, and at that point I looked around for somewhere interesting to do that and so I moved up to central Queensland and started working at Springshaw in my postgraduate studies. So where did, where were you where did you grow up and how you know how did you sort of maneuver that sort of early life? Oh, I grew up on the Sunshine Coast. Okay. Um, and so it was natural to head to to UQ and yep. do science there. Um, I'm actually a um, a terrestrial ecologist with a focus on on plants, and my my work has really focused on 
koalas and their habitat and the relation of koala ecology to the habitat dynamics. So I've got a strong involvement and a strong understanding of of the dynamics of the eucalypt communities across the um, the subhumid um, parts of Queensland. So is your koala research um, mainly in CQ then, or does it stretch beyond the region? Over the years, we, we've undertaken projects um, as far south as the Otway Ranges. In, you know, that was in collaboration with um, Desley Wishon at Deakin University and with the support of Earthwatch Australia. Um, and then as far north and west as Hewenden, um and everywhere in between, really. But the but the majority of our focus has been in the uh, in the greater central Queensland area. Um, so yes, I've got a lot of um, um, background in the in the regions um, as opposed to southeast Queensland. Okay, and is that because there's a um, there's more problems with the koala populations in the region here? Um, rather than down south? No, it's because the, they were being ignored. Um, the, this is the classic um, region versus the, the centre um, issue and um, a lot of um, researchers have to look at the the efficiency of where they can do their research. So most of it was occurring in southeast Queensland at that time or in, in southern states and, again, closer to, to urban centres. Uh, whereas um, once you moved really out of greater southeast Queensland, um, very little was going on. There'd probably been only one researcher working in this area on koalas, and it was Dr. Greg Gordon who was working for the state government at the time. Um, so I looked really for the the opportunity because a PhD is really about um, looking at new things and developing new concepts. So I came up here. And also it was nice to be out of a city. I'd been in the city too long. And, um, well, I'm still here. (laughs) So what's the biggest problems facing koala populations in Australia? Um, Well, koalas extend over a very large part of the Australian continent from far north Queensland to, to southern mainland, eastern Australia. So the problems that are driving the species... The issues that are driving the species vary from one end of the continent to the other, but they fall largely into, I guess, two broad, two or three broad areas. First of all, the the effect of land clearing in the regions, um, more historical now than it was, but the impact of that still remains. The impact of in industry and its development, particularly in relation to mining and mining infrastructure, and some of that is still going on um, with the intensification of, of, of roads and rail and pipelines, etc., which either result in direct koala mortality or disruption to populations. Um, but also urban expansion. So the, the expansion of the, the greater um, um, urban centres, so the cities becoming super cities, and the, the greater southeast is becoming a single sort of urban complex, um, and similarly you know, in New South Wales and in um, in Victoria. But overriding all that, of course, is climate climate effects. Um, 
the the predictions of the the, the climate change modelling are really becoming apparent uh, in throughout Australia, but particularly so in the in the dry parts, so New South Wales and Queensland, where extreme heat waves, extended droughts, long periods of long consecutive periods of time without rainfall, um, very high temperatures associated with fire, that sort of thing, resulted in, in koala populations uh, dying out in a lot of areas and their distribution retreating towards the east and somewhat um, towards the south as well. Uh, but also uh, there are, there's still the legacy of historical land use practices. Uh, so areas that were cleared for agriculture uh, are still cleared for agriculture. So the opportunities for koalas to recover from these things is is quite um, limited now. They, um, they've got large areas of buffalo grassland to cross in central Queensland, different issues in specific, but generally the same in other states. Um, and the other and these things are affecting not only the koalas themselves, but also their habitat. So we're seeing tree, tree species die out of some regions. Um, we're seeing water tables dry up. And so we're seeing the, 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 the resource foundation upon which koala populations can persist are disappearing. So koalas are increasingly being uh, limited to what we call drought refugia or temperature refugia. Or in the case of southeast Queensland, two relic patches of of um, landscape um, where they can survive um, uh, for some time with all the threatening processes around um, the the expansion of of the footprint of, of Greater Brisbane, etc. So, what are the logistics in actually researching koala populations? How how do you know their movements and and things like that? So this this has evolved over the last twenty years, of course. Uh, in the um, in the nineteen nineties, you would catch your koala, and you would attach a radio transmitting collar to it, and then using a radio receiver, you'd follow it around the landscape. And uh, there's issues around how you catch your koala, of course. You just climb a tree and encourage it to come down the tree, one way or another, and that's become more humane. Um, these days than can it was be, in the early days. Can that be dangerous for the researcher? Uh, yes, it's a risky thing, and depending on the size of a tree. Uh, so when you're getting 20 or 30 metres off the ground, then, um, then yes, there are, there are obviously risks involved because you're not just standing up there. You're moving around the tree trying to encourage the koala to come down. Uh, and in the early days, that didn't involve any PPE at all. Um, we just used to go out and climb the tree. Um, so I would throw a, a rope up over a branch and, and then haul up a caving ladder and climb up and then chase the koala. Um, and um, these days it's very different. So you know, there's, there's workplace health and safety to consider, and rightly so, because one fall from even a few metres can do some damage. And I didn't fall from any trees until much later in my life. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then my, my, my landing was softened by landing on a volunteer. Oh, um, well, that's okay. Then. So I was okay. <laughs> she broke an arm. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's... And you know, I'm laughing at that, and it wasn't funny at the time. 
but she was a dedicated Earthwatch person, and um, so we we medevaced her to the mainland and got her her stabilised and her arm um, in plaster, and the the doctors instructed that she had to stay in the mainland at least one night and then she was back the next morning and carried on. Mm. Um, so um, she was a good, a good researcher, that lady. Uh, and it was all, it was just one of those things that happened. We followed all the procedures but the, the tree collapsed under us. Mm. That, that's some of the risks you face when you're doing tree climbing. Um, but that's the only time that that's happened and um, we've had very few incidents in the field. So most of the time in the field it's a great adventure uh, however, talking about tracking koalas around the landscape. So these days, with the advent of um, uh, GPS systems, um, you can fit a GPS um, uh, to the rate to the collar. So you've got the radio transmitter and the GPS on it. So if you need to find the animal, you can. But in the meantime, the GPS is is broadcasting a signal, and you're getting. Uh, records of movement as often as you want them, frankly. Um, and then when you've, you've had a sufficient time, you can you can um, radio track the animal, catch the animal, remove the collar and let the animal go, and you can download all those data and, and analyse to your heart's content. So it's a very different approach now. And the catching is different too. So now now we've, we've, we're using techniques, and most koala researchers are using techniques that, that can... When I say encourage the koala to come down the tree, that's exactly what I mean, and it's done quietly and uh, and with minimal stress to the animal, so it doesn't. It certainly wants to get away from you, but it doesn't feel like it's been hunted to the point of the threat of its death. It's just avoiding you, and as it comes down, you put it in the bag, and there you go, you're away. So, what are you finding in that data? Do they travel a fair way? Yes, they do, um, and, but it depends where you are in the, in in their distribution. Uh, so in this region, they will travel quite long distances, um, but they, they have home ranges, so, they, so they're circling around within their home range a lot of the time. And a male koala might range over 90 or more hectares um, around Springshaw, with female koalas ranging much less, um, maybe up to 10 hectares. And then there's overlap between ranges as well. So females will tend to overlap more than males, um, but males uh, will overlap to some extent, but they, particularly in the breeding season, are quite an- mutually antagonistic to each other. So so they tend to space themselves out a lot more. Uh, in, um, in Victoria, for instance, a home range for a, a male koala, for a koala could be just a few trees, really quite small. So they have a different they have a different ecology to the New South Wales and Queensland koala. So from that extreme to our extreme, there's a spectrum in between, depending on the um, well the nature of the, the population, but also the the nature of the resources available as well. Can you tell us a bit about your current research projects? So we've one of the things we set up basically 20 years ago, were long-term monitoring sites. And we're still maintaining some of those after all this time. Um, And the focus of those is really at St Bees Island at the moment. Um, Where is St Bees? St Bees Island is about 20 kilometres off the coast of Mackay. So it's quite close to the Mackay campus. 
uh, and we've got we, we've been going there uh, for since the late 1990s um, and going there regularly um, at least twice a year sometimes four times a year depending on the programs that we're running um, so that started out as intense study of the animals and what they were doing and what trees they were using and now it's looking at what the habitat itself is doing what's, how is that going to be managed uh, to maintain the koala habitat over time. So how do you deal with environmental weeds? What are the implications of, um, of having uh, feral browsers that are eating the tree seedlings and those sorts of things? And also looking at the relationship of the overall koala population to environmental change because we're studying that population. The environment has changed on these, what were formerly humid tropical islands. They're now moving more into a more wet-dry tropical system, so more like the Keppels as opposed to something further north. And that's having an impact not not only on the koalas but on the vegetation as well and the vegetation dynamics too, so the weediness changes with those things, water availability is clearly changing and the like. So that's one thing, so managing long-term monitoring. Um, I should say all of my research has been done in collaboration with other, with other people and other institutions. And so a lot of the work on St Bees Island and at Springshaw was supported by initially by um, Australian Koala Foundation and then Earthwatch Australia and Earthwatch International too, um, but mainly Earthwatch Australia. And we've also had research collaborators. So um, Bill Ellis, Dr Bill Ellis from the University of Queensland who's been working with me, uh, we were postgraduate students together, so that relationship has continued. And others, in in his in his group, Dr. Sean Fitzgibbons it's a, and and Dr. Ben Bath, all from University of Queensland. But at CQU, we're, we're working in collaboration with um, uh, um, Dr. Michael Hewson, and I'll talk about that project in a minute. But also people, uh, Dr. Flavia Santa Maria and um, Dr. Rolf Schlagloff as well all supported by the community, so through Earthwatch or through Central Queensland Koala Volunteers, who've been also with me since 1989. In fact, they wrote to me uh, on before I even got to Central Queensland saying, hey, we heard you're coming, we want to help you. And they're a group of, um, of local community who are artists or um, they used to be you know, wives off properties. Um, other volunteers over time have come along um, and they've been in an invaluable support both in terms of helping in the field and um, also raising raising funds um, it's over the, it's tens of thousands of dollars over the years but we can talk about that separately if you like so the collaborations we're currently we're currently working on we're, we're still collaborating with U- University of Queensland on St Bees Island and we're going there in in March I'm going to be doing a, an audit of the koala population there and Bill and his team are looking at um, at uh, following koala um, demographics. So they've been following the, the koala families on St Bees Island for, for well and truly over a decade. So the longest continuous data set you'll see anywhere on that. With Dr Michael Hewson, we're working together on um, understanding koala habitat health. So we're looking at, well, he's in particular, is looking at some remote-sensed indicators of what the, the state of a koala habitat is, 
because we're working in the regions, you can't just pop out and say, oh, that looks good. Um, we're talking, you know, how, how do you assess an area um, that might be 100 kilometres by 100 kilometres? Um, and what's the status of that koala habitat? So you can't easily do that on the ground. So you have to use um, uh, remote sense techniques. And that's Michael's skill base. And then I'm coming along and assisting him with the ground truthing on that. And Dr. Flavia Santamaria has been part of our project as well. Um, and then at the same time, we're working with Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service as well, both their Marine Parks Division on St. Bees Island, but um, the, the, um, the Technical Services Unit on the mainland. And we're looking at um, what's a rapid assessment technique for, for, for koala habitat health. If you're on your property or in your backyard or in, in a paddock in a national park and you want to do a quick check to see if things are good or bad, then we've, we've, we've modified some, some methodology that the Parks and Wildlife Service have developed to specifically relate to koalas. And this is now being starting to be taken up by, by people across the state. And they're doing their own modifications of it to suit their own purposes. So that's that as well. So there are two main areas of koala work that, that I'm working on at the moment. Are you also doing some um, work at the Eaton Range Realignment Project? Yes. Well, that project has f- just finished. Oh, okay. So that that project was looking at um, at trying to get a better understanding of the koalas in the um, in the um, Clark Connors Ranges, which is really stretched from about St Lawrence up to um, about Collinsville, broadly speaking. And um, the the Department of Transport and Main Roads um, were re- needing to understand more about the ecology of the koalas because they're having to deal with the impacts of a road realignment that they were undertaking on the Big Downs Highway. And uh, so we were commissioned to um, to develop a an understanding of of what's going on with these koalas and what may be influencing the 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 distribution of road kills on that highway because there are a lot of koala road kills there at the moment. Um, so we got together a team. So we used um, um, Dr. Ellis and his team to to be the free-ranging um, koala catchers and trackers. So their job was to go and catch koalas and put radio collars on them then follow them around and see what they were doing. And um, um, Dr. Slugloff, whose job it was to try and model the distribution of his koala roadkills and try and relate that back to some form of environmental driver. So why are the koalas all getting killed in these discrete spots and not in other places? Because we know koalas uh, occur throughout the, um, the ranges there and along almost the entire part of the, the highway where it cuts through those ranges. Um, and um, Dr. Flavia Santamaria assisted me with the, um, um, the overall assessment of, um, of the ranges. So we developed a, a, f- a broad ge- um, geographical description um, of, um, of the ranges and what the koalas were doing and incorporating the information from others and looking at that in relation to land use and, and settlement patterns and the like. So that all finished 
um, really at the end of last year, um, early this year. So that wrapped up and those reports have been delivered. So we're now at the stage where we're going to be building that into um, into um, peer-reviewed papers and publications. So that's ongoing. So where do you see koala, the future for koalas in Australia? Do you think the numbers will continue to decrease or is there hope? The... It, the, it's a bit of it's a bit of um, good and bad. Uh, at the moment, koalas and their habitat, like all parts of the Australian environment, are in flux uh, because our climate is changing. But at the same time, our population is increasing and our urban and infrastructure footprint is increasing as well. And um, so, koalas in particular. Uh, are increasingly being focused on on areas which are reasonably stable at the moment. And within some of those areas, the, sto- the story is looking good at the moment. Um, but in many other areas, the populations are continuing to decline. So the, the good side of the story is that we have the opportunity to, to ensure the koalas persist in those refugia, and some of them quite large. Um, in particular, we talked about the Clark Connors Ranges just before. Well, the, the Clark Connors Ranges represent probably the most extensive population of koalas um, in Queensland, uh, and also the ranges themselves represent a, a climate refugia. It ha- they have historically and prehistorically, um, and they're expected to in the future as well. But the these, like all refugia, um, become increasingly sensitive to things that we might do to them. So if you have a, a relic parcel of, of forest and things are going well in there, but then somebody decides, well, I'm going to burn it or put a road through it, then you compromise um, th- that relic. You may even destroy it. We're talking much greater extent when we're talking about the Clark Connors Ranges but still the principle's the same. It's what you do to, to, to that refuge that will determine its long-term capacity to provide that refuge. So at the moment, things are good there. Um, the, the, um, the koala populations there are extensive and in places quite dense. Um, most of that landscape is, is um, rangeland grazing. Um, some of it is in conservation estate. Um, and... The koalas have been persisting quite well um, in the rangeland grazing environments, um, and that's important to re- to remember that um, most of koala distribution occurs on private land, not in not in reserves. So, our solutions to to the to the maintenance of koala landscapes lies as much with our landholders as it does with. Um, the the conservation managers and national parks. And in this region, at least, uh, the landholders have been doing a good job for a number of generations and the koalas have persisted there, in fact, even flourished there throughout the millennium drought and previous droughts. Um, So it's an important place and it's currently being managed reasonably well. It did take a hit with the recent fires we had in um, last spring, uh, and we're going to be going up there shortly, um, particularly if we're successful with another um, research grant application. 
and having a look at how the koalas and their habitat have been recovering in those areas that did burn in that last fire. So it's a mixture of, of, of gloom, as pervades all of our, our, our natural environment at the moment, with great opportunity. And, and it's there which, where we've really got to focus our, um, our, um, our attention, really, in terms of conservation research and biology. The, um, the critical thing that we've got to remember is that most of that opportunity lies in the regions. It doesn't lie close to urban centres, south-east Queensland and the like. Um, so we need to try and encourage those f- institutions that fund research or direct research priorities to look at these areas where there are real opportunities for gain as opposed to fighting the bushfires associated with increasing urbanisation. What can we do as a general general pub, as the general public to help the koala populations, to help you guys actually know where they are too? Well, yeah, well, there's, there's a number of things, really. First of all, there's general attitude. You need to be aware. You need to be aware that, that, that koalas are, are out there and, and that what we do affects them directly. Now, if you're living in a, in a suburban um, neighbourhood in Rockhampton um, or in Mackay um, or even in Brisbane, there's, there's not a lot you can do in your backyard but what you do in terms of your attitude towards um, uh, graziers, um, the, the advice you provide to your, your local um, government or to your local state or federal members um, is important um, because it, they will respond to what you think. And they, the, other alternative, the other part of that is to, to participate in terms of assisting to raise funds for research if you want to donate um, or to come along where it's feasible to do so and, um, and join a, um, a research team, be a volunteer. Um, also, let people know when you see a koala. It's important from the government's regu- regulatory point of view but also for us to understand koala distribution to know where a koala was seen what it was doing when you saw it, was it healthy, and, and if you can, exactly where it was. So in scientific terms, we'd like to know the coordinates of where that is, um, but often um, a, a road junction or, or a neighbourhood is sufficient. Is it up a tree? What sort of a tree? Does it look healthy? Is it a boy or a girl? And if it's a girl, does it have a, um, a, a bub on its back or on its tummy? Um, and uh, is it you know, is it big or small? All those things, and was it making a noise, especially in the breeding season? And where do where would people report this to? Um, you can contact your national parks and wildlife service. Uh, you can call the university and say, "Hey, I've got a koala sighting. Who do I talk to?" And they'll direct you to to me, perhaps. Um, and the alternative is, is just let your neighbourhood know, hey, there's a koala in this area. Because you know, if a koala wanders into the wrong place, it can get into trouble. So particularly in southeast Queensland, if a koala's wandering around in, in a suburban area, and there are a lot that are, they're vulnerable to your dogs. Um, they're vulnerable to being run over by cars. Uh, they're vulnerable to falling into swimming pools and not being able to get out. So 
it's important that the local folk know, look, there's a koala here, tie your dogs up, it'll go, it'll disappear overnight. Um, or if you've got a swimming pool, to put something in it so that they can crawl out, like a rope or a tarp or something like that. Even in rural environments, um, it's, it, well, not rural, regional, let's say. So in the Mackay or the Serena area, perhaps, or St Lawrence, uh, where there are koalas all around those, those, those towns, um, then you know, what your dogs do is important to understand. Um, and roadside as well. Koalas can be at risk from being run over by cars in cities, that's obvious. Um, on highways, um, it's more critical because the, the, more, the impact on a, on a highway is affecting a population that's otherwise secure because it's often out into, in, the, in the bush. In the city, all the koalas are in trouble um, because of that ongoing. There's cars everywhere. Um, habitat is often backyards or patches of bush in parks or relics um, in council reserves. And so they're constantly under pressure and their prognosis for them is not good. But out in the country, the prognosis does not have to be bad. When you're not researching koalas, what are you doing in your spare time? Um, when I'm not researching koalas, I may be researching buffalo grass and how to manage that, mm-hmm. um, or lantana and how to control that in a way that that is reasonable. Uh, but then at home, I'm I'm living on a on a bush property, and um, guess what? There's lots of lantana. <laughs> <laughs> so the, your um, research is right at your doorstep. It's a lifestyle, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Alistair. It was a great opportunity to talk about one of Australia's iconic animals. Thank you. No worries. Thank you very much. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.